as a collective group, that group of McNeil, Dealman, Hardwick, Golf, and Olivier, uh, what can you say to, to best describe those guys up front? I would say those guys were, they were the hard hat guys. You know, like those are the guys, like you, you, you think about blue collar guys that take, get up in the morning early, you know, before the crack of dawn, they pack their lunch. In fact, they already have their lunch packed at night. You know, so when they get up in the morning, they just gonna grab that joker and they're off to work. And as and, and soon as they get out their car, they put that hard hat on because they know it's time to go to work. That's how I characterize those guys. Never wanted the credit, but you can depend on them. And they were the guys that were my bodyguards, lead me through, lead me wherever I needed to go. And I always knew that they would show up. I always knew they would. When it comes to great offenses, the linemen are often the ones least talked about. And it was no different in 2006. LaDainian Tomlinson was putting together an MVP season. And new starting quarterback Phillip Rivers led an offense that could seemingly score at will. But someone had to keep those guys standing upright. McNeil, Dealman, Hardwick, Goff, and Olivier. These are the men that built a fortress around the Chargers offense and set the tone to push opponents around. In this episode, we'll explore how this group came of age together in the mid-2000s and developed into a unit that helped make history. For Chris Harey, I'm Haley Elwood. This is Running for History, Episode 4, The Offensive Line, presented by Lazy Dog. San Diego Chargers select LaDainian Tomlinson. LaDainian Tomlinson, one step closer to football immortality. And the handoff to Tomlinson, and he will gallop into the end zone. Charger fans are witnesses to history. Hey everyone, Lazy Dog Restaurants is spreading holiday cheer with these fun DIY gingerbread house kits to take home. It's so fun because they've partnered with Habitat for Humanity and 100% of the net proceeds from gingerbread houses sold will help build homes in our community. The kits come with literally everything you need from icing to gumdrops and lots of other candies to build the best looking house. I personally cannot wait to make mine with my family and friends and you can see what it's all about at LazyDogRestaurants.com. There's an adage in the NFL that usually when you hear an offensive lineman's name on a broadcast, it means something went wrong. But in the mid-2000s, the members of the Chargers offensive line became household names for the right reason, helping guide one of the most prolific offenses in football. That all culminated in 2006. The Chargers were a team that could score easily and often, and as Antonio Gates recalled, none of it would have happened without those guys up front. Man, they are, to me, they are the reason that things happen for myself, for a guy like LaDainian, for a guy like Philip, for a guy like, I mean, those are the true warriors um, to me. And um, I appreciate them uh, a whole lot. I'm sure, you know, a guy like LaDainian and Philip and those guys who've always dealt with them consistently due to the positions that they played, um, they are the reason why we won. It's, it's very simple. We were the ones who got the glory and we were the ones that's catching and running the touchdowns and throwing the touchdowns, but they are the reasons why we won. And they are the ultimate reason why you win football games in, in the NFL because of this, the guys like Marcus and Dillman and golf and, and obviously Nick Hardwick. Um, those are the front runners to me in terms of any good team is the guys up front. 
Good offenses start in the trenches. It's the dirty work that pays dividends on the ground or through the air. The bond that was built between the Chargers offensive linemen and skill position players was key to making the unit click. Just ask Chargers owner Dean Spanos. Well, I mean, I, I truly believe your identity starts with the offensive line on, on any team. It always has in my mind. And there was a great deal of respect, obviously, between them and LT. LT took care of them. I'm sure he took them out to dinner a lot of times. But uh, there was a special bond there between them. So now that we've gotten the vibe of the line, let's break down the five guys that comprised it. Chris Dealman joined the Chargers in 2003 as an undrafted free agent out of Indiana. Signing with San Diego meant he was reunited with his former Hoosier head coach and current Chargers offensive coordinator at the time, Cam Cameron. Cameron and the Bolts decided to convert Dealman from defensive lineman to guard. Not before long, he cemented himself as a starter on the left side. I was more, it took everything I had. Like that, for me to focus and to pick it up and to learn it, because I, you know, learning all the, learning the O line is not an easy gig. You gotta have a lot of luck. You have to have a lot of hard, you hard work and luck just with injuries and whatnot. But having Hardwick and Marcus on either side of me was a great balance for me to keep me within the lines. Uh, you know, we were all really intelligent. I mean, some more than others, but we all were pretty smart. We all knew the offense. We all knew what was going on. But as good as he was technically, Dillman was also the enforcer, bringing nasty toughness and grit week in and week out. Need proof? Let's hear from a couple guys who played with him. Left tackle Marcus McNeil and center Nick Hardwick. Man, Chris is like the best guy to have with you going into battle. You know, he's one of those guys who, you know, if I... If I was in a bar fight and it's just me and him versus 30 people, I, I feel like me and him can go. You know, that's that's how much confidence Chris Dillman gives you because, you know, one, he's not scared to stick his nose in there, and, and, and two, he's not scared to throw a punch. So when you got somebody like that, I mean, it was, it was like the best one-two punch that we could have. We almost felt like we were tag team wrestlers out there. And, and that's my brother. I, just, I actually just saw him yesterday. And, and we just we just went to war with each other. You know, we went to war with each other every every weekend and week out, you know, and Chris was one of those guys who he's gonna bring that type of intensity and you just gotta match it. You know, he's gonna bring that hard nose, let's go. And I don't care who you are lined up against me. And me, I'm not gonna back down from anybody either. So I think we just kind of, you know, were perfect for each other. You know, he come in low, I'm coming in high and we just having a good time out there, rocking and rolling. We never lost our brutal nature up front. And I think a lot of it was because we had some super brutal guys. I mean, Chris Dillman was a brutal football player and he was the, he set the tone up front. Dillman's physicality was unmatched and there was nothing he loved more than making contact and knocking his man off the ball. But as much as he loved it, so too did his running back. You know, one guy, Chris Dillman, the one thing I remember most about Chris Dillman, he said this a lot. He would, you know, at different times in the game, he would start to head to the line of scrimmage after we called the play. He would stop, turn around and look at me right in my face, face to face and say, follow me. You know, and, and how could I not? Somebody with that type of passion, determination, he knows he's gonna win. And if he, if he has that much confidence that he's going to win and he's going to kick his guy's butt, then I, you know, 
who am I to not run behind that guy? I had the utmost confidence every time in Chris Dillman on that left side because I knew he was gonna he was gonna move people. I loved pulling. So 40 power was when I would pull around and golf and and Clary would double team up to linebacker. I loved pulling because and it's gonna hurt. When you go run around there full speed and you run into some big over on the other side, it's gonna hurt. Is it gonna hurt me or is it gonna hurt you? And who's it gonna hurt more? So I wanted to make I want to inflict as much pain on you. So I didn't, you know, when you hit someone clean, like it's you don't you don't hurt. You know, so much as a runner, you think about anyway, you know, because obviously you're the you're the last one back there. You're looking at all these guys on the other side of the ball that are trying to take your head off. So, you know, you you have so much that you're thinking about, but at the same time, it's really all about reaction. You know, as the play goes, it's reaction. But if I have that, my last thought, if it's Chris Dillman telling me, follow me, that naturally, you know, unconsciously, I guess you're gonna you're gonna look at him. You're gonna you're gonna follow him because that's the last thought in your mind before all chaos happens. Dealman was the tone setter, and as he said, learning a new position meant he had to overcome a bit more each snap than his neighbors, like the naturally gifted Marcus McNeil. I think it, we, we were really athletic up front. You know, uh, Dealman coming from a defensive lineman, uh, Nick Harwick, he was, he was smaller, but he was super quick, super strong. Uh, we had Shane Olivier, who, who was there, who was, he was a smaller tackle, but his feet work was impeccable and he could get off the line like no other. And then you round that off with Mike Goff, who was a, a tough son of a beat for himself, you know, the whole time and kind of the veteran of the crew. I think we had that leadership and, and some of that veterans ability with Mike Goff. And then from there on, we had a bunch of young guys who were just ready to go out there and compete and just weren't scared of nobody. Hey everyone, Lazy Dog Restaurants is spreading holiday cheer with these fun DIY gingerbread house kits to take home. It's so fun because they've partnered with Habitat for Humanity and 100% of the net proceeds from gingerbread houses sold will help build homes in our community. The kits come with literally everything you need from icing to gumdrops and lots of other candies to build the best looking house. I personally cannot wait to make mine with my family and friends and you can see what it's all about at LazyDogRestaurants.com. Part of the beauty of this Chargers offensive line was how seamlessly the mix of younger players and older veterans gelled together. So now, let's focus on one of the latter in right guard, Mike Goff. When Goff arrived in San Diego as a free agent in 2004, he was entering his seventh season in the league and came to the Chargers wanting to be part of a team that could make some noise. Joining a team that was set on building a winning culture was also key, so he teamed up with a coach who felt similarly. I, I knew so much about Coach Schottenheimer for you know, all those years, all those years in Cleveland when he was in Kansas City. And, and you just, when you got a chance to just meet him in person, you got a sense of, of he, he was a genuine, he was a genuine coach. And I think sometimes, sometimes when you meet someone, you can tell whether they're being genuine or not. And he just had that, that thing about him that just, that you knew he cared. You knew he loved football. You knew he wanted to win. And you knew everything that he was talking about was, was the truth. 
And I think when you surround yourself by someone like that, it really does give you the opportunity to say, hey, I could learn a lot from, from a man who's been around for many years. He's been around the sport a long time. And, and just to get a chance to, because to me, it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with San Diego. I, it, the weather, anything like that, that just, I mean, 17 years later, I, I'm obviously still here, but it, it, was, it, was about, it was about buying into what Coach Schottheimer was selling. And he said, we didn't have a good year. We accept that. We accept that we had a bad year. We understand that four and 12 isn't good enough, but we need to change it. We need people like you. We got your buddy, Lorenzo Neal here. We got your buddy, Steve Foley here. We got other guys that you know, your buddy, Tim DeWhite's here. We got guys that you know on this team and we can make this something special. And I think at that moment, when he said that, uh, that, 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 that resonated in my brain that this could be something special. It didn't hurt that they put me on the phone with LT and LT said, hey, we can do something special too. That didn't, that, that, that didn't hurt things. Uh, that definitely helped. But I think that, that just him, him being passionate about it and him being sincere about it really just leads you to believe that, yes, I believe what you're saying. And yes, I'm going to come here. And yes, I will do everything I can to help you win. I tell you, when he first got there, I felt like, like we had just got a piece that would make the offensive line come together. You know, having him on the other side of, of Dick and obviously being strong, those those uh, front three spots, center and both guards, you know, big guys that can move people off the line. Golf was really good at obviously pulling. The 28-year-old Goff was at a stage in his career where he not only brought a physical presence to the offensive line, but his mental acumen was unmatched. And Goff was so good at pulling through the hole and, and really finding those linebackers and getting those key blocks. And not to mention that the guy was super smart. I mean, he was he was always, he, I don't know if he ever made a mistake. Whenever you think about if someone jumped off sides or somebody missed their block or, or a blitz or something, it never was golf, you know, because the guy was a solid pro. You know, he understood his strengths and weaknesses, and he was just kind of one of those glue guys that kept us together. Dealman was in his second season when Goff joined the Bolts and was still very much learning how to play guard at the highest level. Goff, who had seen a lot of football, was now a mentor to show Dealman the way and discussed how he never saw his younger counterpart as competition. Golfer was like that savvy veteran, man. He, he'd been there for a while. Uh, didn't say a whole lot, but man, he's smart as a whip, dude. He, he knew his stuff, he'd been in there. He, he, knew how to, he knew how to get his hands in there and, and get the job done. And he was a, a, good, a good veteran presence in, the, in there, so you could see how to learn how to be a professional. So golf was like a nice veteran, kind of showing the young pups, you know, not some, somewhat showing us, but he was a good example of how to make it, how to last. Some people look at when they bring in younger guys as, as a threat to your job and a threat to you. Uh, I, I didn't want to look at it like that because in my early, my first year where I was before San Diego, I remember one of the older guys, I asked him if he would show me something and he looked me dead in the eye and said, no, because I don't want you to take my job. And that was the end of the conversation. And I kind of made a little bow to myself at that time that I wasn't going to go and do that. I wasn't going to be that person because if I'm not good enough, then I shouldn't be playing. While Goff joined the Chargers knowing he would be one of the key veteran voices on the field, 
he didn't expect to impact Dealman's life so much off of it. Goff not only took Dealman under his wing, but under his own roof in the Pacific Beach neighborhood of San Diego. You know, I lived with Goff for like three years in his basement. So him and I were like brothers. Like, I mean, he was a phenomenal cook. I mean, that's how I, that's how I met PB. I mean, I fell in love with PB after living in his basement. But um, that's definitely a good big part how we all kind of grew up together and you know it's that was a special time that was a special group miss it a lot I think anytime anytime you can break bread with with people that you you care for and even if you know anytime you can just get together and have a meal have some beers have some wine have some dessert it just it makes things better and one of the highlights I I enjoyed doing was, was in particular Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners just Finally, you know, usually get deep fried turkey and have people just bring something and just getting together because I was I was single at the time and a lot of the guys were single, so you really didn't have any anywhere else to go. So just to get everyone together and just be together outside of the facility. And I think you get a chance to really get a chance to know people, know their story, know what they're about. And I think again, that just kind of builds to the when you get to know somebody on a, on a personal level, it makes you want to not let them down. So if you're keeping score at home, we've got the enforcer and Chris Dealman and the savvy vet and Mike Goff. But Goff wasn't the only core member of the 2006 Chargers offensive line that joined the team in 04. The Chargers drafted two promising blockers that year, including a physical seventh round tackle out of Ohio State, Shane Olivier. Shane Olivier, the wild man. You know, he, he was the wild man of the group. But the one thing about him, he was like, he was the nastiest next to Chris Dillman. He was the nastiest lineman that we had. Like he absolutely wanted to dominate you. And, and honestly, he, he, he might've been the most gifted, you know, quietest kept because he wasn't a, a big tall guy, but he was able to run block. He was able to pass block. He was athletic. He had strong hands. He can drive you off the ball. Olivier could do everything. And, you know, I, I love the guy because he enjoyed his job. And you, you knew he enjoyed it. There was times where, you know, he would get so pumped up and he would just start screaming, start screaming out there after he dominates somebody. And as a runner, you know, that's what you call imposing your will. That's what we enjoy doing was imposing our will. And Shane Olivier would do that often. He would oftentimes be the first person imposing his will uh, during the game. In the third round of that same year, the Chargers drafted the future anchor of their offensive line, Nick Hardwick. The Purdue center was raw. He hadn't even played high school football and instead won a state championship in wrestling. But he decided to walk on to the Boilermakers squad where he eventually cemented himself as the team's starting center. Once he got to the NFL, his limited physical experience wasn't noticeable because mentally he was a step ahead, according to Dealman. We all were pretty smart. We all knew the offense. We all knew what was going on. But Hardwick knew it better than anybody. And the way he could direct, like if, if Hardwick overrules something, you went with Hardwick. Don't, I, hey, I, I see something, but I, Hardwick says it, I'll go with Nick. So, the term, you can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. Well, Hardwick was the cook, all right? So whatever Hardwick said, we're going to go with that one. 
And the way him and Philip would work with each other throughout the game was amazing. But you saw that when you would watch him in meetings and how they would communicate there. As Hardwick himself remembers, he had great mentors on the Chargers staff and team who helped him become so cerebral with the game. 2004, having Hudson Houck as an offensive line coach for me was instrumental in my development as a guy coming into the National Football League. I think I had like 14, 15 starts in college. I didn't know anything. I didn't play high school football. And so he gave me a great foundation to work from technically, how to study, how to look at defenses. And then I really do have to go back and give Roman Oban a bunch of kudos to all of us young guys, really, because when he came in, he forced us to develop great study habits. And so did Hudson Howell. Hudson would put us on the board and make us draw defenses and draw plays against them, which then would take us from training camp and we'd go home as a rookie. And he would tell me, you need to study two extra hours tonight at 10 p.m. So I'd study from 10 to midnight every single night as a rookie just to make sure that that information was in there. And then he would test us the next day. Yeah, well, Nick was the, Nick was the captain. You know, he was the guy that we looked to to make all the calls. You know, he was the he was the professor, if you will. You know, he was, but he, but at the same time, he was this bad dude that really took care of everybody else. You know, he did his job, but he did other guys' job as well. And the thing about Nick had a great relationship with everybody on the offense. He can talk to everybody. And it's, it, it wasn't just, you know, talking. It was really getting to know each and every man um, on that team and especially on the offense, offensive unit. But, you know, he was the glue that kept us all together. He, the, he was the main key uh, on our offense. Hey everyone, Lazy Dog Restaurants is spreading holiday cheer with these fun DIY gingerbread house kits to take home. It's so fun because they've partnered with Habitat for Humanity and 100% of the net proceeds from gingerbread houses sold will help build homes in our community. The kits come with literally everything you need from icing to gumdrops and lots of other candies to build the best looking house. I personally cannot wait to make mine with my family and friends and you can see what it's all about at LazyDogRestaurants.com. Marcus McNeil was the fifth and final piece of that famed 2006 offensive line who came to the Bolts in that year's draft. Normally, a left tackle is tasked with protecting a quarterback's blindside, but the Auburn prospect was no stranger to protecting elite runners as well, as he helped Ronnie Brown and Cadillac Williams reach 1,000 yards and double-digit score seasons in college. Now, he had the chance to do the same for LT, and he did it with a personality to boot. I was already excited to be able to block for a back who was, you know, already MVP caliber athlete and, and running back. So I was just excited to meet him in the locker room. You know, the first time I met him in the locker room, I remember just being there like, man, I, I play with him on that, you know. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Mac was definitely the clown. Like between him and Nick, them two were the funniest dudes you could have in a beat. Well, Marcus was, you know, we, we consider him the cool young kid. You know, he has sweet feet, you know, he can run, he was pretty, you know, but at the same time, he he was nasty. You know, he wanted to embarrass you and he wanted to, you know, get you to a point where he'll just be laughing at you because, you know, he's dominating you. Um, and 
you know, Marcus would, he would always obviously defer to the older guys on the line. But man, he was he was such a a, a great tackle. He, he was passionate about, you know, his job. And he was always there, you know, in practice. He loved the practice and he kept it loose. I think at times where, you know, we had so many serious guys on our offensive line, Marcus was one of the guys that really kept it loose and kept it fun. And even sometimes when we'll be we'll be in a huddle and everybody be serious, Marcus would crack a joke and make everybody laugh. So he was that type of guy. Lining up next to McNeil on every snap, Dealman was passionate about the punishment he could deliver with the rookie at his side. At six foot seven, the athlete named Big Mac was the ideal complement to Dealman and the perfect guy on the left side of that offensive line. I love double teaming with Marcus. Marcus being so much taller than I am, I could get down low and Marcus, you know, that helped Marcus because he could come in and we would move these three techniques. And that's just a, that's just your, that's your will. Like you're like, I want to beat your ass. Like, I want to get you, I got to move you out of here. We're going to get you. We're going to like, they know we're going to do a double team on you. And yet our technique, our, like our grit is just not going to stop us. We're still like, you know, we're going to do this and we're still going to push your ass 15 yards over there. And then golf comes around, LT pops out and boom, we got another big run. During that 2006 season, McNeil earned Offensive Rookie of the Month honors and was never called for holding. A big reason he had such a stellar rookie year at left tackle was because of the faith his head coach had in him. For Mac, it didn't matter that he was the youngest of the bunch. Schottenheimer's one-play-at-a-time mentality resonated with him and helped him take his game to new heights. My best story about Marty was he pulled me to the side. We were just walking to meetings, and he just kind of pulled me to the side, and he tells me that, you know, Marcus, uh, I know you're going to give up a sack. You know, I, I know it. Like, it's going to be a play. You're going to say it. Something's going to happen. You know, uh, you're going to give up a sack. I'm not worried about that play. I'm more worried about how you're going to approach the next play. So whatever happens, I need you to put that behind you and then go and attack the next play. And that just lifted such a weight off my shoulder. I already had the bag of chips on my shoulder. So he, so he lifted that weight off my shoulder to where I felt like I had to be perfect. Things had to be like, you know, flawless for me to be able to, to start at left tackle or be able to play at a high level. Like, it, it took me from being a little bit slowed down or, or slowing my pace down to make sure that I could be perfect to just going out and playing, you know, balls to the wall, just straight as fast as I can go, you know, put my foot on the gas pedal and go. So now all five pieces of the offensive line are in place and it was on them to dominate and dominate they did. For Hardwick, the offensive line worked every day to play in the image of their leader and complement the philosophy that was Marty Ball. Marty did not overcomplicate the game of football. And I don't think the game needs to be that overcomplicated. And I, I guess what he did was, I mean, the, the philosophy is simple, right? It's one play at a time. Hit him in the mouth, man. And that was it. And it's, you're just going to have to hit him in the mouth, hit him in the mouth, hit him in the mouth. And eventually we're going to be able to impose our will on you, which ultimately when we boil football down, that's what it is. You know, yes, we got to be good tactically. Yes, we have to be good technically. But how can I find a way to break your will? At the end of the day, in the fourth quarter, I got a sign over here that says, we do our job with a monotonous consistency day in and day out, one play at a time. Then in the fourth quarter, we impose our will. 
And that was kind of the offensive line's mantra. And that was a sign that was hanging up there. But that was Marty. Keep it close. And in the fourth quarter, we're going to step on the gas. We're going to crush them. And that's why we were so tough. And Marty never let us get away with anything in practice. I mean, we would be halfway through practice and the defense would be getting beat and he was fed up with it. And he'd start the whole thing over, start it over. It's like, oh, we're halfway through this deal and we're going back to warmups and we're going to go back. And, and that was just, he was relentless on the details and mostly he was relentless on the intensity and where that needed to be on a daily basis because he knew that when the time came, that intensity was going to be most important. So along with protecting Philip Rivers, this group had to open lanes for LT. A group like the offensive line can't survive if all five guys aren't on the same page, but they also won't survive if they can't communicate with their playmakers. That was never a problem working with LT. Oh, oh yeah, there's there there's LT. You you can tell an LT didn't like to play. We were we were running some form of outside zone. LT really didn't have that really didn't have that that kind of love for it. He still he would make it work because he was an unbelievable running back. But we LT was the master at figuring out the power. And I think that if we didn't run it enough, just like anything else, if you don't get something that you 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 want, you kind of get a little kind of get a little pissy about it. And I think that that there are times where he, he, you know, I don't want to run that play. I want to run this play. And we as offensive linemen said, yes, we want to run that play too. And so, and so I think that you look at the offensive coordinators we had and, and Camp Cameron, uh, North Turner, uh, Clarence Shellman, those guys, uh, they all understood what we were good at doing. But I think what they were trying to do is they were trying to, trying to make us more than just one dimensional and just running power right, power left. And I think that at the end of the day, they knew just like we knew that it was time to start running power if we weren't enough. And LT had no problem telling people, hey, I don't know why we're running this play. We need to be running this. So lo and behold, that then we started running that. You know, LT knew what he was good at, that's for sure. Um, he loved running power, obviously. And I, I, 50 slant was probably my second favorite play. And that's just a, me versus you. Move him out. LT knows exactly how I'm going to block it. He knows what's going to happen. And he would call it. He, you know, I, let me get off of this cut. Let me get off of this side. Let me. And with him being vocal about that, you know, that puts us in the right plane. And he, he knows what plays he's good at. We know what plays we're good at. And thank God that matched up. And those were the plays that we all were good at. And that's the ones that you saw him breaking off these runs. And, uh, you know, with LT, the best part about him is he never fumbled. Like, he never fumbled. So, and if he did, it was very rare. And so, as hard as you're working, there's nothing worse than busting your ass and then he gets a run and fumbles. Like, the ball security with LT was also huge. Communicating with his line as a skill Tomlinson had a lot of practice at, and it was something he worked on his entire career. Just ask David Bobo, who blocked for him at TCU. He, he was vocal back then, too. I, I mean, now whether the coaches would listen to him back then, it probably wasn't until our senior year that, that it, it really was a collective effort. You know, he would say, hey, if we do this, I really think we can get it done. Um, and like I was saying, that feel that he had, it, it really worked. You know, I thought it was important at, at different times to watch film together as, as a, you know, a running backs group and an offensive line group so we can talk about 
plays, run plays. I, I wanted them to know, you know, in certain run plays, what my thought process was, you know, how I like to run the play. And we would talk through certain plays, you know. I think that just helped us build, you know, a better connection of, I guess, when it became, when it became, you know, deep in the fourth quarter, when we needed a play, we didn't have to think about, you know, what we'd like to run. We all knew. So if they call 40 power, we already, they knew what I was thinking on 40 power. I knew exactly what they were thinking in terms of, I know my golf, you know, and I, I know Nick Harwick, 40 power, they like to hold that double team a little bit longer. Chris Dillman doesn't, but Mike Goff, he likes to hold it. So I need to be a little bit more patient, you know, with this play. Things like that, you know, is what you learn in the film room and then you, you, you translate it over into the games. So I always thought that was very important that we, we both understood each other. Every snap that unit played was done in hopes of punishing their opponent and giving Tomlinson an opportunity to make a play. It might not always start pretty, and sometimes people are going to have a good game plan, but you weren't going to abandon it. You were going to keep grinding. You were going to keep chopping. You were going to keep doing everything that you had to do to go win to go win the game, and you were going to do it running the ball. And I think that was a that was just such a you take pride in it as an offensive line. And when your running back has over 150 yards at the game, you kind of grab a grab a cold beer after the game and you say, hey. All right, we got the job done this week. On to the next. Former San Diego Union Tribune writer Jim Trotter described the 2006 Chargers offensive line as five fingers that formed a fist. And that fist helped clear the way for number 21's historic season. But for the players, 2006 and all the years they spent together meant more than just celebrating wins. They celebrated each other. They were a group that grew up together, found strength within each other, and a group that is forever etched in Chargers history. We were wild and they loved us to be wild. They didn't, nobody really tried to hone us in and they just said, we like this energy. We're not going to try to temper that. So we're going to use that. And I remember Roman once was like, I love playing with you kids. You remind me how fun this game's supposed to be. And he, he said, you give us a, a little bit of extra life. And that was important. And then when Marcus comes in and Clary comes in, we're all basically at life at about the same time we're all kind of growing into this space together and meeting our wives and having kids at the same age and we're going through the exact same phases of life together and we were fighting on the field together we were spending 12 hours in the meeting room and on planes and in buses and at restaurants and we it was just a perfect time scenario for all of us and it was it was wonderful it's such a special special group that uh, you know we just recently got back on a text chain and it just is fun just catching up with them and and i think the thing that's special about about us and just football in general is such a special fraternity brotherhood that you might not see somebody for years and you just fall right back into it and i think that when you have that kind of relationship, you really want to play for the person next to you. We were together for so long, you almost knew what everybody was thinking before we even did it. We didn't have to really talk at times. And some of these days you couldn't hear anyway, so uh, you just knew. I knew what Marcus was doing, Hardwick and I knew what we were doing. Like, 
we just, as a group, we worked together very well. And, and I'm telling you, and we all fought every once in a while, you know, we all ragged each other, but we were a family and we were brothers. And, and we got to stay together luckily for, you know, five, six, seven years. And, and I think what we had for the five years that I was here was, was truly the best lines that I've ever been associated with. This has been an LA Chargers production. Coming up next on Running for History, it's finally time to talk 2006, the year LaDainian Tomlinson took the league by storm. Along with the help of a new starting quarterback, we'll take a look at just how LT led the Bolts to a league-best 14-2 record and how the running back made history in the process. It just was like every week, like the touchdown count for LT was like four, three, four, two, four, and, and it's like, wow. I mean, sometimes the practices were harder than the games. Um, because that's how much we would compete. And we had the type of guys to um, to really get on you, right? It was it was a player player's run situation where um, we, we, you know, started practice, ended practice. Uh, there was no holding back uh, in the locker room. If like, if a guy's not working hard, um, then you knew that he would, somebody was gonna get on you, LT being one and, and low nail and some of the older guys. And, but that built a culture. That was a culture that we had. As these things are happening in terms of, as you're piling up the yardage, but also scoring four touchdowns, you know, one week, you know, two touchdowns, you, you do have a sense that, man, this is a really great year. Like something special is going on. But at the same time, you're living in a moment. And so you don't allow yourself to, to go there, to think about, what the possibility can be because you know it, it's it's a now game it's a moment game it's it's what are you doing now don't look ahead don't look behind you and so um it's easy to say in retrospect that yes you know we knew that something special was going to happen but honestly we were proud just to live in a moment people just love this guy lt could have been uh, mayor, he probably could have been governor of the state of California. He was so popular. 